Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. The way we've been doing this, if you've been coming here, you know uh, that we, I teach, or Pastor Al teaches a sermon that goes along with a chapter in a book that we're going through called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, and you don't have to read the book to get something out of the sermon, and you don't have to listen to the sermon to get something out of the book. But the chapter that we're corresponding with today is chapter 8, Breaking the Power of the Past. And it's the idea that we all uh, receive wounds from our families growing up, even when we're, we're not trying to... Uh, Karen and I used to say when we would do something goofy as parents, well, they'll be sorting through that in counseling someday. I mean, it's unavoidable that we're going to screw our kids up in one way or another. It's just because we're human beings, it's unavoidable. And the chapter in the book is all about how do you recognize the ways that you are becoming the brokenness that was passed on to you. I, one of the, the truths that's just true in family system. Uh, counseling is that apart from the Spirit's help, apart from real intentionality, you will, over the years, over the decades, become the worst version of your same gender parent. That's just, that just happens. It's unavoidable. You know, we try to deny that that's going to happen, but that's what happens. Apart from being intentional about not doing that, you will become those things, which is, um, which is scary when you think of the the things that we might be passing on to our kids. But at the same time, um, we can also, if we focus on the good, we can become the good things that our parents passed along to us, the good things that our parents modeled to us. So, so this chapter is essentially all about learning how to recognize and identify those ways um, and how to overcome them with Christ's help and how to overcome brokenness that was passed on to each of us. So there's, you know, and this isn't a a guilt thing towards parents. This isn't a shame thing towards parents. This is just the state of humanity. We are human beings, which means that we are impacted by the fall. We're impacted by sin. And because of that, we bump up against each other and hurt one another. So the community of grace is a place where we exercise forgiveness quickly, don't hold grudges, don't think the worst of people. This is what Jesus is inviting us into as part of his family. So today we're going to be talking about what does it look like to be in Jesus's family? How does that happen? And how can we uh, be a part of that? So I'm going to read from chap- uh, Mark chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like in your Bibles, or you can just lis- listen. If, you, if it's easier for you to follow along listening, then please do that. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to mark things up, to underline, to write thoughts that come to mind in the, in the margins. And so that this, your Bible can be a one-stop shop for you to remember the things that the Spirit has taught you and to help other people grow in following Jesus. So, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. I'll read it and then we'll walk through it. Mark 3, 31 through 35. It's talking about Jesus. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside... They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother 
and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would shine the light of truth into our hearts through Scripture. That wherever there is our thinking and our understanding is clouded, is dark, I pray that your light, the light of your revelation, the light of your scripture would break through the clouds, break through the darkness, and bring clarity and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read through this just a little bit at a time, starting with verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. We know a couple things about Jesus' earthly family. We know in Mark 6.3, it tells us that Jesus actually had brothers and sisters. They were half-brothers, obviously, but they, and, but they were his earthly brothers and sisters. And so it's interesting to think about that dynamic of what would have been like, what would have been like to grow up with Jesus as your brother. And we don't know a lot about this from Scripture, but it's inter- interesting to reflect on And I don't know if you grew up with brothers and sisters, but the fact that Jesus was sinless and grew up with brothers and sisters is impressive. Uh, Now, I had two wonderful, have two wonderful sisters that I adore very much. Julie's looking at me right now wondering what I'm going to say. And my sisters are fantastic. They're great. But, I mean, for them to have grown up sinless with me as a brother, that's what I'm saying. That would have been really, really, really difficult. When you have siblings grow up, there's something about the the chemistry, the rivalry, the competition or something that sometimes brings out the worst in us. And yet Jesus was without sin. The second thing we know about Jesus growing up with brothers and sisters is that his brothers didn't believe he was God. This is John 7, 5. His brothers did not believe that he was the son of God. Now, his mom did. She had some inside information from the angels, which we'll get into in our Advent series, but his brothers didn't believe that he was God and, and came across as a little bit of, uh, sarcastic towards him at times. His moral virtue growing up, his moral perfection, his love, his patience, is probably willing, more willing to share than any kid in history, none of those things were enough to convince his brothers and sisters, that he was God. So far as we can see, the only thing that finally convinced them that he was God was the resurrection and the ascension. We see after, after Jesus ascends into heaven, in Acts 1.14, it tells us that the disciples were praying in an upper room and his brothers were with them. So seeing their brother and, and remembering how morally perfect he was growing up and then seeing him resurrected from the dead and ascending into heaven was enough to convince them. Actually, he probably was. He probably is the son of God. Our brother is the son of God. That's crazy. So they started hanging out with the disciples. They were praying with the disciples in the upper room. In fact, two of them wrote books in the Bible, James and Jude, both Jesus' brothers. The point I want to make is at this time, they didn't believe that he was a son of God. At the time of this passage that we're focusing on today, they did not believe he was a son of God. So how did they respond to his public ministry? 
And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. There's an interesting play of words here, because what Mark is teaching us is that there are outsiders and there are insiders in Jesus' family. Now, they're making a point to say that even his biological bloodline family were considered outsiders to his spiritual family at this time. So you couldn't inherit faith. It's not something that you could receive just by growing up in the family, which was different than what people had been taught and believed up to that point. But they were, at this time, outsiders. And they were attempting an intervention. This is really crazy. Jesus had started his public ministry. He was starting to say things that might feel a little bit embarrassing to the family, like claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah. He was starting to teach. He was starting to perform miracles. He was starting to gather a community of disciples that he was going to send out to, do, to finish his work when he left. He was starting to gather a crowd. People were listening to him and teaching him. He taught with an authority. He was a threat to the religious elite. And so his family was worried about this. And they're like, his brothers were probably like, we got we to gotta stop him. This is getting out of hand. He's getting, this is crazy. The things that he's saying, the crowd that he's getting, it's, it's reflecting badly upon us as a family. We've got to intervene. And I wonder if, uh, if any of you have ever felt that tension. You know, as you follow Jesus, there, there's a couple ways you could follow Jesus. You could kind of just go through the, the motions of it and be passive and, you know, not proactively seek God through scripture and prayer. And you'll live a good enough life. Or you can proactively go after God and begin to understand scripture in a way that that actually becomes your reality. So that the point that the, the, the longer you do this, the longer you learn to abide in Christ, the kingdom of God becomes as real as this pulpit is. The kingdom of God becomes as real as the chair you're sitting on. And the kingdom of God becomes something that you bank your life on and you, just, you start making big life decisions based on the reality of the kingdom. And that's called living by faith. And once you do that, and if there are other people who aren't doing that, who feel the freedom to speak into your life, you'll start making decisions that they don't really like or that just don't make sense to them, or that don't feel wise to them. It feels like you're getting, uh, you're getting a little bit too much into this. I'm starting to get worried because now you're making big, big decisions based on this kingdom, and I, I think Jesus would want you to be smarter about that. When you begin to make decisions as though the kingdom of God were actually real, a concrete, real, genuine reality, in which you live, when you anchor your life in that reality, other people are going to be confused by it and may even try to stop you. And if that happens, you can take heart because that's what was happening with Jesus' family. They thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. 
you're saying things, you're making decisions, you're prioritizing things, you're moving away from the family business of carpentry, you're the oldest brother, you're supposed to carry it along, Joseph had probably died by then, and you're going out and starting this traveling, he's a traveling minister. What are you doing? Get back home, get in the shop, take care of us. They thought he was crazy. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So these are the insiders. These are the people, the crowd around Jesus that were sitting at his feet, probably cross-legged in concentric circles I read somewhere, listening to him teach. These were the insiders. Now, I want to kind of define outsiders and insiders for you so, so we're clear on it. Outsiders are those who tried to control their own lives and tried to control Jesus. If you're an outsider you're not giving Jesus freedom to have his way with your life. You're actually trying to control him. Probably more accurately, you're controlling what he has access to in your life. That's what an outsider is in this situation. His mother and his brothers were outside. They were trying to control Jesus. What is it that you say, you can have everything except that? You're controlling Jesus. And he's not, you can't control him. It's an illusion. It's illusions that we build of control in our lives. You know, everyone builds empires of illusions somewhere in our lives. Wherever you're saying you can't have that is where you are trying to control Jesus. Here's an issue. I read this from, uh, um, I think, a study Bible. The, the verb looking for, I'm not going to attempt to say it in Greek, but the verb looking for implies giving attention and priority and deliberately pursuing control of Jesus. All 10 uses in Mark describe an attempt to find Jesus and gain control over him. In other words, I think I wrote, typed that out a little clumsily, but what this is saying, what this Greek verb means, every single time it's used in Mark, people are trying to exert control over Jesus. Limit access that they give him to their life. Every single time in Mark. Insiders are those who are releasing control of their lives to Jesus. They're the people who are sitting, they're in a passive posture, they're, they're receiving. They, they're people who open up scripture and say, you can do violence to my life. You can do violence to my priorities. You can have whatever you want of mine. Those are the people who are sitting close to Jesus, listening to his teachings, and rearranging their lives based on what he says. So there's outsiders, his family outside, trying to control Jesus, trying to get him back in line to what they think he should be. The disciples did this all the time too. Peter did this all the time. And the insiders were those who were sitting at his feet saying, whatever you want, I trust you more than me. You can have everything. So it does beg the question for us, you know, which camp am I in? Which camp are we in? Are we like Jesus' brothers trying to control him? Or are we like those sitting around Jesus allowing him to control us, giving him access to our lives and saying, whatever you want, whatever you want, it's yours. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
Now, first of all, Jesus was a master at turning everyday, ordinary events into spiritual lessons. Nobody did it better. If I was sitting in his shoes there, I mean, think about it. It would have been a little bit awkward. I'd have probably thought, oh, here we go. This is, this is going to be very, very weird. I hate weird. This is going to be weird. I mean, imagine me. My family is amazing. You would never do this. But imagine me, sit, like I'm preaching right now, and someone runs up to the front and sits there and, and is like, uh, your, your mom and your sisters are outside. They want you. I think you're in trouble. That's kind of the, the, what happened here. His family was trying to control him. He was getting in trouble with them. But he used an awkward earthly moment to teach an eternal heavenly truth. He taught them about the fact that he's creating a new family. Now, here's what I need to make this point. This is really, really important, so you don't have to ask this afterwards. So I'll just say it right now. Jesus is not diminishing the importance of our earthly families. That is not what he's doing. Jesus would speak in hyperbole and hyperbolic contrast where he would put things together that just to make a point. Like he, he doesn't literally mean when he says that we should hate our families. He, he means in comparison with our loyalty to him and our love for him. Our love and commitment to our families should pale in comparison to our love and commitment to him. He's not diminishing the importance of families. God created us not just to live in families, a group of interdependent people under the same roof, but in households, groups of people who are dependent upon one another under the same roof. And that goes to our extended families too. We ought to be closer to our families, if possible, than any other communities or people on earth. Now, that's not always, always possible because some of us have had some really, really hard things growing up, and that's just not possible. But especially in those cases, it's true that God is giving you another family, a spiritual family. So he's not diminishing the importance of our earthly families. He's elevating the importance of our spiritual families. And when you are privileged enough to have a family that it's both your biological family and your spiritual family, it's that much sweeter and it's that much better. But nonetheless, Jesus here is beginning to teach on this family, this one giant super universal family that he's creating of followers. So I want to give you a very brief survey because this is actually important. Anytime we can tie this to the whole of scripture, anytime we can tie what we're talking about in one particular passage to all of scripture, I think it just helps us understand the Bible better. So here's God's plan. Bring everyone together and everything together, all of creation together in Christ. And from the beginning of time, he's been doing that. If we would have never sinned in the Garden of Eden, we would still be one big happy family and there would be no separation between humanity. But we did sin, which brought in separation between us and God and us and each other. And then Genesis 12, God looks at a man called Abram, and he makes him Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a giant super family, a super family that's comprised of every nation on earth. Your one little family is going to become one giant super family. So if you are a Christian, you are a part of that family. 
before Jesus left in Matthew 28. He tells the disciples to go, go make other disciples of all nations. So what he's saying is he's continuing this promise that God made to Abraham. He's going to make him a family, one large family comprised of many nations. He's going to bless all the families of the world through his lineage. Jesus continues that in Matthew 28 and says, go make other disciples of all nations. We're continuing to move forward this one giant super family made of all cultures, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. And that's where we are right now. That's what we're supposed to be about right now. The work of making other disciples, no matter what your background, no matter where you're from, you are invited to the table. You're invited to the feast. You're invited to the kingdom. So anything that separates that or hinders that is not from God. Do you think it'll work? Do you guys think it'll work? The Bible's really cool because it tells us the future. Revelation tells us some wild things. Some of them might be happening now. Some of them will happen in the future. But one of the crazy things is it tells us the end of the story. It tells us if, if, if God's plan worked. One world made of multiple nations, all one giant spiritual family. He tells us it actually worked. This is moving fast forward into the future. This is a vision that John had on an island called Patmos. And this is Revelation 7-9. This is part of his vision. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It's going to work. It's going to happen. God growing his family is an unstoppable force and nobody can stop it. Now, you can choose to either be on board with it, you can choose to either be in the family, or you can choose to not be in the family. But what's going to happen at the end is this spiritual family, all who have bent their knee to Christ, are going to be together for eternity on this newly created earth. All nation. One giant family. And that's what Jesus is speaking about in this passage. That family and how it comes to be. Jesus gives all of us an opportunity to be part of a dynamic, this dynamic loving family. The invitation is for us today. Didn't come from a great family. You weren't fortunate like some of us have come from a very loving family where this isn't new, if, but a lot of us didn't. Were you abandoned? Did you feel abandoned by someone in your, in your family? No problem. God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Was your home environment oppressive and controlling? No problem. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden's light. Were you afraid of, you know, how your, one of your parents was going to wait? If they woke up on the wrong side of the bed, they were unpredictable, which equals dangerous. Jesus is predictably loving. There's nothing that's going to separate you from his love. He's kind every time. He's gentle. And he's making us into that type of community as well. When you become part of God's spiritual family, he reparents you if you yield yourself to him. He heals your soul of all the brokenness that's been inflicted upon you. What is the family like that Jesus is creating? 
it's a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. We talk about this a lot. We, I, we had a men's meeting a couple weeks ago, and um, one of the things that we talked about is that we have to become men who are safe. There, there's a lot of things that I mean like that. by that. We are safe because our hearts are clean and pure. We don't objectify anybody. We're safe because we're predictably cheerful. We're predictably kind. Nobody's worried we're going to blow our top. Nobody's worried we're going to lose our temper. It doesn't happen anymore. As we're learning to walk with Christ, we are safe. Our kids wake up knowing that we're going to be cheerful, that we're going to be gentle, that we're going to be kind, that we're going to be in a good mood, that we're going to be interested, that we're going to be talking with them, that we're going to be interacting with them, that we're going to be patient. We become predictable this way. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit, if God is abiding in us and we're walking in the Spirit, we just become predictably good people. That's what God's family is intended to be like. It's a community of people who are embodied by the healing presence of the Spirit of God. It was the people who were sitting around Jesus. Jesus goes on to describe in verse 35 how to become part of this family. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God. It's not just whoever hears it, not just whoever can talk about it intelligently, not just whoever reads and learns about it, not just whoever has an opinion about it, Whoever does the will of God, that's who he says is in his family. Jesus in the Great Commission said to teach them, people that were discipling, to obey everything we've commanded, that he's commanded. To obey. It's action-oriented. James 1.22, Jesus' brother said, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. It's possible to go to church all your life and not be a doer of the word and deceive yourselves into thinking that you're in the kingdom. But wait a second, I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Ephesians 2a says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. I thought, I thought that's what saved us. What about grace? What about kindness and mercy, the justice of God in those things? Here's what Jesus is saying. Obedience is the result of being in Jesus' family. Obedience is the evidence of being in Jesus' family. So if I'm counseling somebody and they are, um, they feel overconfident that they're in the family of God because they made a decision all these years ago. And yet they have no interest in that decision impacting the everyday moments of their life. And they want me to just assure them that that's, you can do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do. You made a decision. They want me to assure them I can't. I can't make any, I cannot do that because it doesn't align with what Scripture says. Because obedience is the result of being in Jesus' family, and obedience is the evidence of being in Jesus' family. And Jesus gives a category in the New Testament for people who thought they were in, who were actually doing things, who were actually possibly preaching. And Jesus said, I never knew you personally. Because the way that my love language is your obedience, everything else is talk. 
That's pretty strong. But here's the good news in that. When you put your faith in Christ, the Father gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit begins to change your appetites and your desires. The Spirit actually makes you want to obey God. And if you don't want to obey God, then perhaps the Spirit isn't active in you. That's the hard truth and the reality of, I think, what Jesus is saying here. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. When you become a Christian, God puts a spirit in you, you begin to want to do the things he tells you to do. But when I was, I was talking with a couple guys about this this week, we're reading through uh, a book together, and he, uh, we were talking about before we really surrendered our lives to Christ, and there were some things that I just did not want to stop doing. There were some parts of my life I did not want to surrender over to Jesus. I just did not want to. I was very resistant. I was, I was kind of stiff-arming God in this way. Anytime you're stiff-arming God, then that's not a good sign, and I was doing that a lot. And I was like, I don't know if I want to surrender to Jesus. I mean, I'll be a Christian. I'll, I'll be a Christian. That's great, but I don't want to actually give him all of my life. And he said, if you really surrender to Jesus, the Spirit will come inside of you and he'll, he'll make you want to stop doing those things. He'll actually change your appetites. He'll change your desires. He'll make you want to obey him. He'll give you the want to and the power to actually walk in obedience to him. Now, if you don't want that, then live your own way. Do your own thing. But if you want that, if you want to be in this family, then surrender to him and give him everything. And in that act of surrender, that's an act of faith, and he will meet you there and reward you. Romans 16, 6.17 sums this up. He sa it says, uh, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You will become obedient from the heart God will give you a desire to obey him through the power of the Spirit at work in you. To be a part of this family of God's is in one way very easy because it is by grace, through faith. It's also a little bit difficult. It's a paradox because Jesus, we can't pretend Jesus didn't say some things and he did say count the cost before you follow me. Both are true. It's easy, it costs you nothing, and it's hard, it costs you everything. It doesn't work to hold parts back. You gotta jump in, and he'll meet us when we do that. Being part of his family will make your life better, it'll make the lives of the people around you better, you will start living your best life, but not in the way that maybe television preachers say. Your life will be marked by all the fruit of the Spirit, the virtues of the Spirit. You'll start living in an other-centered way and less hyper-focused on yourself and how other people treat you. You'll, you'll be more focused on how I'm treating, how I'm serving, how I'm loving others. That was the way of Jesus, and that was his message to the disciples over and over and over and over and they didn't get it until he left and the spirit came and dwelt in them the same spirit will live in you today he'll live in you today and he'll create this family that is not possible apart from his holy spirit
Jesus' family is a place of empowerment and healing, and it's available to everyone. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.